Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. And what we found over the years is that each of us have kind of this certain vantage point. It is like our greatest contribution to the other people who are teaching. And um, there's been a couple of people in our group that are always saying, well, where are you in this? Like, give us more of your story. Give us more of your testimony. I'm like, why? Why do you want to know more about me? Why can't I just talk about the Bible and get it over with? Um, so one of the things that, you know, is this, this month, we're kind of, we're really setting the tone for us to talk about the vision that God has given us for this year, um, which is going to be on Praxis on uh, January 28th. But one of the things that we felt as a leadership would be really good is to talk about um, what the role of pastor is. So kind of in the smaller sense, what my role is within this community and the kind of expectations uh, that you guys can have for me, but the kind of the larger sense of, of what, what, is, what, is, what does pastor mean? Because the word pastor and the word church are so intimately tied together, and I feel like um, both of them have these sort of ambiguous definitions sometimes. And, and, and ultimately, what I, what I really want uh, today to be not about is not just about me and my role and your expectations of me, uh, but to recognize that in some way this is something that we're all called to. So I want us to begin um, just by dialoguing with one another over these two questions, because I think it's so helpful for us to have a common base with the people that we're sitting with on well, what, does, what does pastor mean? How have you seen that defined? How has it been demonstrated to you when you're growing up? Many of us grew up in church and had varying degrees of understanding what pastor really is. Uh, but many of us never grew up in church and we're kind of coming in with this open-handed expectation that the Lord would reveal something to us. So we're just going to take three minutes. I want you to turn to the people uh, that are next to you, behind you, in front of you, or whatever it might be, and just talk about these two questions. So let's do that for three minutes. I'm always fascinated, I'll just bring you back. Um, I'm always fascinated by the words that we use in certain cultures. You know, each, each culture that we step into, your, your job, your ethnicity, whatever it might be, there are, there's a certain group of words that can help to define that thing. And I'm actually a big fan of us redeeming a lot of the words that we use in Christianity rather than throwing them out. They're our words and we get to own them, but. Uh, part of, I think, the journey of faith is for us to come back to the Lord time and again to say, Lord, you've given us these words. Um, breathe fresh breath into them. Give us new inspiration for what these things really mean. And I hope that as we're, as we're talking about that, and I know so many of your stories, the, the word pastor has been modeled really well for a lot of us, but some of us, it's been kind of this ambiguous, amorphous title. A lot of times what we see, and I would even be so bold to say, is that the majority of American pastors, or the, who we call pastors, are not actually pastoral. That I think a lot of times the word pastor becomes this catch-all phrase for anybody in leadership in a church. And I think a lot of times our pastors are actually really amazing executives, or they're fantastic teachers, or they're very prophetic, or they're very evangelistic, and we've just kind of ascribed this word pastor to them because they're being paid by a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Uh, but a lot of times, th that actually muddies the waters in some ways uh, for what our expectations are supposed to be for pastors. 
and then making sure that we're actually looking to people that have been so gifted um, to step into that. Um, so what we're going to do, I'm going to just share a little bit about on, of my journey and how I've come to understand what this role entails. Um, and then we're going to have a time of questions and answers at the end, which is going to go so well, I'm sure. Uh, we'll see. I love being put on the spot. It's my favorite Thing about the job. So this is how it's going to work. Um, during the message, you'll see that there's this phone number at the bottom. This is nobody's phone number in particular. It's definitely not my phone number, so don't call it. Um, but if, if you, a question comes up as I'm speaking, whether it's about what I'm saying specifically, something that you've wondered about the role in general, text it to that number, um, and people on our team in the back are going to be kind of filtering those questions, kind of seeing what are the general sentiments, and then we're going to have a time of Q&A at the end. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for you, uh, and please uh, pray for me. Heavenly Father, we testify to the truth that you're here and that you're with us and that you're for us. Um, you have not come to condemn us, but you have come to lift us up. You, you give us a spirit of advocacy, um, and that is, that's the, the energy that keeps us going down the road as we're journeying deeper into faith, into relationship with you, into relationship with one another, um, and discovering what life in Christ really means. Um, and so, Father, as I'm uh, sharing these reflections this evening, I pray that all of us would be open to hear your voice um, in really personal and specific ways, because you're a personal and specific God. And there's things that you want to speak that maybe have something to do with what I'm saying and maybe have absolutely nothing to do with it. And that's okay, um, because we've all come here today with this expectation that we're going to meet you uh, and that we're going to be transformed by that encounter. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I considered becoming a pastor for about 30 seconds in the 10th grade. Uh, for many of you who you know, grew up in probably more of a public education, you had to decide what you were going to become in the 10th grade because if you didn't, you weren't going to go to college and then you're going to end up homeless, right? Uh, so there's all this pressure in the 10th grade, what are you going to do, what college are you going to go to, and all of that, and you go through all those meetings with your counselors and your teachers and all of this, trying to figure it out. Maybe you went to job fairs or you shadowed somebody, and, and for me, I was really blessed. I was always raised with this idea that ultimately, you should do something with your life that carries meaning, that affects the people around you. In our household, it was never really about going out and making a lot of money or going out and just doing something that you love for its own sake. Um, you know, side note, most of you know my dad is a pastor, and so it was never about making money in the first place. Um, I, I suppose you can make a lot of money in ministry, but, you know, you probably have to compromise a few things to do so. But, you know, there was this moment in the 10th grade where I'm thinking about it and saying, okay, what do I want to do? Oh, my dad's a pastor, and that seems pretty meaningful in people's lives. Maybe I'll do that. And then I thought, no, that's what Baptist pastors' kids do, you know? Like, us Anglicans, we don't, like, carry on the family heritage. You know, one of my friends, he's, like, fifth-generation minister. His great-grandfather was, like, a circuit rider, and his grandfather did big tent revivals and all of this. And that's, like, that's Pentecostals and Baptists. We good Anglicans don't really do that. Um, and just out of curiosity, how many of you in here are pastors' kids? There was a, okay, there was about 10 or 15 of us this morning, which is just wild that we have so many in our community, but perhaps that speaks to something of what the Lord's doing here. Uh, and so I decided I really wanted to become a teacher. I loved education. I got it. I knew what it was about. And it came down to, do I want to teach art or history? These were the two um, occupations, the two disciplines that I really understood. I knew the meaning that could be in it. It's not, art is not just about teaching people how to draw but it's teaching people how to see and experience the world around them. History is not just about learning facts, but it's about us you know, understanding the human story so that we might change the world around us based on um, those people that have come before. And so I chose uh, my college my senior year. Uh, I went off to Flagler College. I did a five-year degree in art education. Never changed colleges, never changed my major. That was what I was on this planet to do. Um, after college, I got a job up in Nashville teaching high school, moved up there and for three years, worked in inner city schools teaching art with zero budget and got absolutely burned out. And I remember after my third year, uh, of just really struggling. Every, every day had been the same prayer. Lord, teach me how to do this in a Christ-like manner. 
Because here I was, this skinny white kid at 23 with his gigantic beard and nose piercing, trying to like teach art um, to, the, to these kids without any money, like doing like, using like crayons that were 20 or 30 years old, like opening up these like stacks of paper that had been left by my predecessor. There's mummified rats sitting underneath them, you know? Um, and just constantly trying to figure out, how do I do this in a Christ-like manner? And I'd, that was always a struggle for me. How do I reconcile my faith with my profession. I think maybe many of you struggle with that as well. And at the end of three years, I came to my pastor at the time, uh, and I just kind of broke down. And I said, I, I, can't, I can't do this anymore. I feel like I'm compromising who I am every day just to survive. Uh, because if any of you are in education, you know that so little of what you do is, is actually teaching. So much of it is administrative and disciplinary, and you're spending you know, 45 minutes after school calling parents and they either don't care about their kids at all or they care way too much and there's never really that sweet ground in the middle where they're advocating for you. And, and I just was so burned out. And I said to him, I feel like I'm compromising who I am every day just to survive, but when I, when I do the work of the church, it's more than I just feel happy, but I actually feel complete, I feel whole. See, for three years, I'd also been um, on the worship team, and I had been leading small groups and kind of helping run church services on Sundays, uh, administering the communion. They had really created a space for me to, sh- to offer up my journey and my perspective as an Anglican into this charismatic space, and it was so good for me to learn from them, and, and they really wanted to learn from me. And my pastor said to me, well, Ryan, I've known in the prophetic sense for uh, a while now that you weren't going to teach for very much longer, and the Lord had put it on his heart um, to start up this ministry school, and so he offered me this job uh, to become the spiritual director at our church in Nashville, uh, and I launched this ministry school and did that for three years, and, um, and it, was, it was this wild ride. I was grossly underqualified for what I was doing. I had no piece of paper in any way, shape, or form that said that I was actually qualified uh, to step into that role. But I loved it because I was, I was learning on the ground. I was almost making it up as I was going along. I was playing jazz, you know, um, much to the chagrin of my community, trying to figure out what does this thing look like. And after three years, uh, because of some relationships that I had built down here, um, through that time, I was uh, offered the position to come here and to pastor this church community. And so I've been here for four and a half years in total. Thank you. Here's another four and a half. Woo. No, I, prom- actually, I actually promised Paul 40, 40 years. So I've got uh, 35 and a half years to go, and then I'm out. So <laughs> you guys use the time wisely. It, so this was never the plan. This, was, this wasn't the thing. I was going to teach high school for 30 years, get the golden handshake, and retire. And then I was going to run this ministry school, and I was going to live in Nashville for 30 years, and then I was going to retire. By the time I got here, I went out to dinner with Paul and Ann, and Ann asked me, what are your dreams and aspirations? And I said, I don't have any. I don't know. I'm here. That's all I can say. But I have no dreams. I have no aspirations. Because if you keep your expectations low, you will never be disappointed. The Lord's working on me in that one. But this was never the plan. This was never the thing that I thought that I was going to do with my life. But in doing that, it's ultimately become this, this more beautiful endeavor than anything that I had really previously imagined. And so I want to begin by just sharing, you know, kind of a ground base for, for how do we maneuver through roles and vocations within a church, how that relates to all of us. And then I want to talk about three things that have helped me as these lenses uh, to see the role of pastor Let's begin here. Um, all of us are called, and some of us are ordained. Um, I was having coffee with a good friend a few weeks ago, and he was asking me about uh, the idea of ordination and, and the roles that we have in church. And he said, what's your perspective on that? You know, because a lot of times I almost see like there's this spectrum. In the one sense, we can have this idea that roles, vocation, or whatever in church is relegated to the select few people that are gifted, uh, and they're the ones that do God's work, Right? But on the other end, you can have this thing of like, well, everybody's called to it, and so there shouldn't be any kind of hierarchy, there shouldn't be any form of structure, we're all just following Jesus, and we just happen to do it together. And I tend to fall somewhere in the middle, and I, and I, and I told my friend, you know, for me, the vocations in a church are a lot like what we've talked about in our community a lot with spiritual gifts. And I believe that all of the gifts are available to all of us all of the time, right? 
When, when you and I, when we walk our lives open-handed and available to whatever the Lord wants to do in that moment, he is going to equip us to be his faithful presence. But some of us are equipped with a very particular set of gifts that speak more to our capital C calling in life. And one of the things that we've endeavored to do as a community is to help each of us gain language for our particular set of gifts and then to see how does, how does that set of gifts uh, best position me to contribute to the work of God within this church and even beyond its walls. And I believe that that's kind of a similar position that I see when it comes to vocations within the church. You may see um, with St. Peter in, in his first letter, he says, you know, he talks about the priesthood of all believers. You and I, all of us, we are called uh, to minister before the Lord uh, and to, to, to reveal Christ wherever we go. And I think that is absolutely 100% true. And I also believe that even in that early church, they were talking about people who were specially set aside to kind of help the community grow into that kind of vision. And so Paul says this uh, in Ephesians 4. Um, in Ephesians 1, 2, 3, he's kind of giving this really big picture of what God's doing through Jesus, and he begins to narrow it down. And so Ephesians 4 is really all about you know, how the community is organized to see that become a reality. Uh, and then later on in the letter, it becomes more about our personal uh, positioning in that. And so he says this in Ephesians 4. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And so even in the very first churches, they, this is how they chose to organize this radically new thing called church is that they, set, they appointed certain people to have these specific roles that help kind of uh, order the community and help the community grow together into the fullness of Christ, that we would all know him, that we would hear his voice, that we would be obedient to do whatever he's calling us to do. And so we see Paul writing letters to a young man named Timothy who was uh, a pastor of one of his churches. We see other people mentioned, Epaphroditus and Lydia and others, these people that had these special vocations within the church where they were called uh, to shepherd and to guide particular communities. Because we have to remember, in the first century, when Paul's writing to the Romans, he's writing to maybe 150 people in like the center, the city that's at the center of the world. You know, the church in Philippi could be 50, 60 people. They, there weren't a lot of uh, Christians in that time. But the early solution of the church was to appoint or to ordain certain people to step into that role of helping everyone else recognize their full potential in Christ and who they're called to be. So that's kind of the succession that we see throughout church history. Um, and, and sometimes, yes, that has been abused and taken advantage of, but I still really believe that is uh, how God has chosen uh, to organize his people. So several weeks ago, um, I mentioned uh, a mentor and spiritual father of mine, Kent Davis, uh, who passed away at the beginning of December from pancreatic cancer. And I had mentioned in that message that there was something that Kent had said to me that changed the trajectory of my life specifically when it came to this role. And so in, in May of 2013, I happened to be passing through town. I came to Florida on vacation. I was just really working through some things in my life that, that I was really struggling with. I was kind of feeling a lot of guilt and regret. Um, and it was just a very difficult time in my life. I came down here and I happened to be passing through town on my way to Tampa to minister in one of our sister churches. Uh, and I had, this is when I met up with Cole and we were just talking about uh, my life in Nashville and, and how the ministry school was going and he was sharing about this community and how everything had been going here. And that was when he kind of opened up the conversation about me coming here and joining uh, the team and helping to, to pastor this community. The next morning, um, I woke up to drive to Tampa and I wept the entire hour and a half all the way out there. Uh, because of all the guilt and the regret that I was working through in my own life, um, to have this opportunity all of a sudden dropped in my lap was just overwhelming. You know, there's this line in the Psalms where, where David's wrestling with the Lord, and he says, you know, I'm a worm and not a man, and that's kind of the place that I was at. And I said, as I'm, as I'm just kind of processing with the Lord driving to Tampa, I said, God, I, I don't even know if this is actually from you yet. We're not there. We'll get to that point. But if it is, I don't understand why you keep giving me these opportunities. I'm not equipped. 
I'm not competent. I don't know why you keep giving me these invitations. But if the rest of my life is just you offering me one thing after the other so that I know it's not my ego reaching out for something, then I'm totally okay with that. So I went out to that community and I I ministered in that church and there was something that I said, I I wrote down like three lines for myself in in that message and I said, God equips the willing. And that night I'm over at Kent's house we're sitting in his pool, and I'm just explaining to him this, this, this huge thing that's on my mind and, and just really wrestling with how to work through it. He said, very matter-of-factly, as he always was, you know like those old charismatic guys, and they've seen a thing or two, like nothing phases them in the best way possible? That was Kent. He was great. Actually, when, we put that, when I uh, entered that photo to put up on the, the screen a few weeks ago, someone said, hey, is that resolution photo of Santa Claus going to work? I'm like, that's not Santa. That's Kent Davis. That's what he looks like. But we're sitting around, I'm just sharing this with him, and he says to me, well, I feel like now's a good time to tell you as any. When you were preaching this morning, you said God equips the willing. I just felt like the Lord said, I'm willing to increase his influence if he wants it. So take that or leave it. And his wife like hit him, and she's like, you're just confusing the boy even more. But it became so central to my story of recognizing the thing that I had said was actually true. God equips uh, the willing. Um, and I needed that prophetic word from Kent to kind of steer the ship. And that summer, um, you know, my staff in Nashville, we were praying about it. The community here was praying about it. And we felt by the end of summer, like, yeah, I think the fingerprint of God is on this. And really both transitions in my life from teaching high school to spiritual direction at my church in Nashville, and then from there to here, um, both have been these invitations to grace. Because I think a lot of times we think that we're qualified because of our competency. We think we're qualified to do the work of God because of our expertise, because we have the degree, or we got the certificate, or we've worked out all of our hours on the timesheet, or whatever it is. And I believe, unfortunately, when we think that's what qualifies us to live into our calling, then we never really live by grace, because we're only operating in our natural abilities. And I love reading, and I love seminary, and I love that we do practical hours in our things. I'm not diminishing any of that in any way, shape, or form. But we think that that's what qualifies us to do the work of God. We have fallen short of grace. Because grace is what you discover at the end of the rope. Right? Grace is what you find when you don't know what else to do. That you have to come before the Lord open-handed and say, I'm, I'm, I'm stuck. I'm lost. I don't have the answer. I don't know what I'm supposed to do in this moment. And so for me, in my best days, and I'm not perfect by this in any means, learning how to be a pastor has been me finding the end of the rope and coming to the Lord open-handed and saying, I'm stuck. I I don't know what's next. But it's that willingness to lean into him, to trust him, to guide me that I have been able to lead out of that place of grace. And the amazing thing is then, before long, that becomes your natural territory, right? Right? you begin to become a little bit more acclimated to those things. But even if you stop there, you stop leaning on grace. So you have this really powerful time in the beginning of your ministry or whatever it might be, and then you just kind of settle into these old patterns. So when I'm in this place now where I'm trying to learn, how do I continually lean into grace? How do I continually find myself where I'm, I'm never so dulled to the voice of God that I think I can do it out of my own ability? And so... These are just kind of three ways that I have understood my calling, but I think that they speak again to how any of us understand our calling or our vocation. The first is this. The role of the pastor is to tell the story of God in such a way as it interprets all our lives. It has been incredibly vital to me to recognize that my job is not primarily to help and certainly not to fix people. But I think a lot of times in the American church, that's what we reduce the role of pastor to, is that it's primarily a helping profession, that my job is to figure out what problems you have and then to fix it. And the problem is there are people that are actually way more qualified to do that than me. I have an art degree. So just keep that in mind. Um, But I think a lot of times what has happened in the American church is that we have reduced the role of pastor because we believe that the story of God is... Uh, either too good to be true or it's not really approachable or, or whatever it is, and we've actually reduced it down. So pastors are there to give us good advice and to fix us. Uh, preaching and teaching is there to give us advice and teach us how to live uh, a little less miserable than you were the week before. Uh, just to, for inspiration, that that's what it's primarily about. 
And unfortunately, I'm not Oprah. She's way better at giving inspirational speeches than I am. In fact, I think I'm probably more despirational, if that's actually a thing, uh, than her. But a lot of times we've bought this line that that's ultimately what the role of the pastor or the teacher is. But I'm, I'm recognizing more and more that my job should not make any intelligible sense if the story of God is not true. And if I can judge my role, whether or not God exists, it still works, then I have sold it short. One of the theologians that's absolutely at the core of me uh, has shaped so much of my understanding of church and this role is Stanley Hauerwas. And he says this in his book, Resident Aliens, the church is not to be judged by how useful we are as a supportive institution and our clergy as members of a helping profession. The church has its own reason for being, hid within its own mandate and not found in the world. We are not chartered by the emperor. And as soon as you and I, as the church, as soon as we think that our role is to find our place in culture, that we allow culture to dictate what the world looks like, and then we just try to find our place in that, we have missed it. We have missed our calling. Because it stands above and beyond what's going on in the world around us. The challenge in that, in recognizing that my role is to tell the story of God in such a way as it interprets all of our lives, is then how do I measure success? I think this is so often where we struggle when it comes to this idea of pastor. Because many of you have jobs where there, is, there are measures for success. You know, how, how big did the numbers get this month? How much, you know, how many jeans did you sell this week? Whatever it is, like there's measurable, tangible uh, contingents for success. But then we step into a kingdom economy and the principles of, of, of God and the, the people he's organizing. And, and what do I measure for success? Is it how many empty seats are in this building? Is it how big or small our, our budget is? Is it how many people attend our small groups? You know, all of these things matter to some degree. But if I was to judge my success based on those measurable amounts, uh, I would quickly crumble. One of the things that was a huge transition for me taking up this job, I, I recognized as I was praying through it that the Lord said to me, I, I want you to be faithful. I'm not interested in your success. And I began to challenge and reorient my understanding of what is meaningful in my life. That at the end of the day, am I able to say, I have been faithful to him. I have listened and I've been obedient. Because success looks a little bit different in the kingdom than it does in the empire we can't judge what we do here by those criteria. And so my role is to lead all of us in telling the story. We do that through the word. We do it through worship. We do it through prayer. We do it through being the faithful presence of, of, of Jesus to one another. And we also do it when we go out into the city of Orlando and the world around us. But my role is to lead us in telling the story to each other. This is why I think church is the strangest thing in the world. We come together. You guys had a billion things you could have done this evening, but you chose to come into this odd space to tell each other the story and be shaped by it so that you can go back out into the world to learn how to be faithful to Jesus. Because good stories form us. Good stories dictate to us who we are. They challenge our assumptions about how the world works. Good stories, they give us a place. They give us and an identity. They give us a context for who we are and what we're called to do with our lives. And because I believe that the, the, the word pastor and the word church are so intimately connected, then I think church is really a group of people that have been oriented around God's story. That church is a group of people who come seeking his story, allowing it to transform them so that they might reveal the story to the rest of the world. And so my role is to, to lead the telling of the story so that we all learn how to tell the story out of our specific gifts and personalities. And I think the second lens through which I've come to understand this role is this. The role of the pastor is to teach you to see. The role of the pastor is to teach you to see. And this is um, actually another thing that I learned in art school. Um, I've, I've used this analogy before that I believe church is like the art museum, okay? So what happens when you go to an art museum is that you step into this odd space that's been set apart from the rest of the world. 
And when you come into uh, an art museum, you have a different set of expectations of what you're going to experience there. It's not the same as going to the grocery store or going to a friend's house, going to the park, sitting by yourself in your bedroom. There's something different about the art museum. But you go to the art museum with this expectation that you're going to see something in a certain way. And this is one of the things that I learned, is that good art challenges the way that we see the rest of the world, right? And that's true if it's a painting, or if it's a movie, or it's a dance piece, whatever it might be, good art challenges the way that we see the world, that when we encounter good art, it changes us, and then we go out into the rest of the world, and we see everything differently. These are the best kinds of, of museums that we go to. And I believe that church should operate that same way. We all come into this sacred space to learn how to see, and it changes the way when we go out into the rest of the world, we see everything else differently. And if that's what church is like, then my role is to be the museum curator. So my senior thesis in college, I was a painter for four years, and my last year I actually worked all the visual elements out of my art, and I had all of this like bloviated theory about what I was doing, and I was only working in sound. I was going to be this painter of sound. I created these sound sculptures, and I created these booths with these headsets, and all this, all this stuff. And one of the things that we do at the end of the thesis is all the art professors come, and you stand in front of your art, and you talk about it. You talk about uh, your process of creation and what you're trying to do and whatnot. And I was sharing about my sound art and how I'd worked all the visual and visuals so over and painting is dead and all this stuff. And there was this professor that I had, he wasn't one of my professors, I had never had him. And he goes, hmm, you'd make a really good art theorist. And what I heard was, hmm, you're not good enough to actually be an artist, but you can talk about it well. <laughs> what I learned from that was that I am really good about talking about theories and ideas and helping to build bridges and things. And it actually has translated really beautifully into what I do today. Um, so I see my role as something of the museum curator, putting together the collection, welcoming in the artists, creating that space for you to come in with the expectation that you're gonna see differently. And it changes the way that you see, so you go out into the world and see the entire world differently. But I think unfortunately, a lot of uh, churches operate less like the art museum and more like the kitschy art gallery. So in St. Augustine, um, at either end of our historical street, there are galleries for an artist whom I will not name, uh, because by the way, when you go to art school, you also become really snobby and everything is terrible. Uh, and this artist mass produces their art and it's very uh, kitschy and quaint and cute and absolutely means nothing. And and that's my professional critique. Um, and what you do is you go into this kind of gallery and you spend about 30 minutes looking for a piece that has the right dimensions to buy that work of art. You go home and you put it on the wall in your living room so you never ever have to think about art ever again. Okay, that's what that stuff is for. And I think a lot of churches actually operate that way. Is that churches sell you something that you can put on your living room wall so you don't ever have to think about God ever again. You did the work. You went to church for an hour and a half on a Sunday, or you went to the small group, or you did your Bible readings or whatever, but not in a way that it actually is challenging the way that you see. It's just so you can tick the box and say, well, obviously I'm a Christian. Look at this terrible piece of art on the wall. And unfortunately, that's the church has reduced itself to that in so many arenas that we're just here to sell a product to kind of give people a stamp of approval that they're mostly okay and they're, they're doing everything fine, and, and, and it's such a low expectation for what church can be. And I think we're really suffering for that. I think a lot of people, especially in our generation, I've sat with many of you and I've heard your stories, and many of you have told me the very similar question, that, or the, 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 the very similar story. You got to be maybe 10, 11, 12 years old, you grew up in church, and you began to ask questions about things that were always kind of presupposed, about the nature of God, about the doctrine of the church, about what faith looks like, about why do we do this and why do we do that and you've had spiritual leaders that have said, oh, we don't ask those kinds of questions. We don't challenge those things, we just believe them. And if you continue to ask, they actually accuse you of having doubt, heaven forbid, that you would ask questions. And what happened to so many people in our generation when they were raised in churches that believe faith is just about memorizing a list of statements and less about being a journey of discovering the mystery of God is one of two things. Either people in our generation lost their capacity to ask questions, 
So they grew up just memorizing and regurgitating all of the party lines. And then they entered into the big, broad world, and there was all these different points of view, and they don't know how to contend with any of it, so we've closed ourselves into these echo chambers where everybody just uses the same language and speaks the same things that we do. Or the other option was we kind of threw our arms in the air and said, this is all nonsense. I'm going to go somewhere where people actually entertain questions and, and discovery and exploration, and they go and seek something outside of the church for them to be affirmed in that process. And I believe that one of the things, I do actually believe in the prophetic sense, this is one of the things that the Lord is doing in the American church, is that he's raising up leaders who can actually help our generation question well, to believe that the questions and the doubt, rather than being the antithesis of faith, can be incorporated in and become the process of discovery. And we talk about Abraham being the father of the faith, and it's not because he had all of the answers and he had memorized everything properly. It's because Abraham chose to participate, especially when he didn't have all the facts. And that's what faith is. And I believe those are the kinds of, of Christian leaders that we really need, that see participation as the act of faith. And I think when we start to understand that, then we move from a prescriptive ministry to a presence ministry. When we believe that it's about memorizing the right lines and doing all of the things in the proper way, then we offer people prescriptions we write, a, you know, someone comes to you with a struggle and you say, oh yeah, I know what you do. You need to just read your Bible more and you just need to pray harder and you need to give more, whatever it is, take two of these and call me in the morning. You've completely removed yourself from, from the presence of the other person. But if we can reclaim that idea that it's about presence, it's about the divine presence of God inaugurated in each one of us, that we can offer that presence to one another to hear the stories, to hear the questions, to hear the struggles, to hear the victories, and to continue to move down the road together, to continue to participate in the life of faith together, we actually recognize that we're moving deeper into the reality of God. So my role as a pastor, all of our roles really are to be a faithful witness to one another, to be a witness to what God's doing. And the third and final a way that I have come to understand this role. The role of the pastor is to reject the role so subtly that you find yourself at the feet of Jesus. I started working um, at the anchor in, in Nashville as pastor. His name was Josh, and Josh uh, felt like it was the Lord's invitation to, to move on, and so our associate pastor, Brian, was stepping up into the lead pastor role. And we hadn't worked particularly closely, but we decided we're gonna go out to lunch and just gonna get acclimated with one another more so we have a, a deeper understanding of our relationship. Uh, and one of the things that we came to in that very first lunch meeting that we had was, oh, our job is to make ourselves redundant. Our role is actually to work ourselves out of a job. And it's kind of this impossible task to make yourself redundant when it comes uh, to the kingdom. Because I think, unfortunately, a lot of times what happens is that uh, pastors and church leaders seek to make themselves necessary. They actually keep people on spiritual milk. They teach people how to be codependent so that they become the answer. They become the linchpin that holds the whole thing together. But what we had discovered was that our impossible task was actually to reject the role, to reject the fact that we are the ambassador of God, to reject the role that we are going to be responsible for the spiritual well-being of other people. But we're going to do it so subtly and gently and over time that people actually find themselves in relationship with Jesus without even really realizing it. And I think it's interesting because for me, that's the difference between being Christ-like and having a Messiah complex. Too often in our celebrity-obsessed culture, we establish someone within a church that becomes this, this idolatrous person, that the, the pastor has to be the answer. The pastor has to be perfect. They have to be able to answer everything properly. Their lives have to look absolutely 100%. This is the demonstration of what a Christian is supposed to be. And a lot of times when we do that, what we're saying is, I want my pastor to be the kind of Christian that I don't have the time or the discipline to be. I need my pastor to believe on my behalf. And what happens so often is that we see pastors break under that burden. That, how many times do we see it in the news where a pastor, if it's not alcoholism or it's an affair or it's a case of rage or whatever it might be, there's just this little dial over on the side that they release the pressure of having to perform admirably. This is one of the things that I confessed to Paul at the very beginning when we were talking about this role. I said, I'm afraid of that happening 
I'm afraid of stepping into that level of responsibility because the expectations placed on me to be the perfect Christian will lead me down some very dark paths. And what happens then when, we, when our pastors fail us is that we crucify them because it actually forces us to confront that maybe we're not all together. Because if they're supposed to believe on our behalf and they start to fall apart, then the responsibility of faith falls back onto me. And I realize that maybe I don't have it together. Maybe I'm not the best and the perfect Christian. I think even we see this in the very beginning of the church. I don't think this is a new uh, phenomenon in the, in the 21st century. The church in Corinth in the day of Paul was a very affluent, uh, kind of hustle bustle of the, the urban life, very cosmopolitan. And what we find in Paul's first letter to this church is he sends about a paragraph saying, gosh, I love you guys, you're great. Okay, anyway, let's go down the list of everything that I'm hearing you're doing wrong. And the first thing that he gets on, he says, I'm hearing all of this argument about leaders. Some of you are saying, I follow Paul, and some are saying, I follow Apollos, and still others are saying, I follow Cephas, and some of you are saying, well, I follow Jesus, you know, in that kind of like snarky way. Oh, you know, and he starts to go on, he's like, who's Paul? Who's Apollos? Like, I came in and I planted the seed, and then Apollos came along and he watered the seed and helped it to grow, but it's God's garden. And yes, I laid the first few bricks in the foundation. Apollos came along and he added some more bricks, but it's God's building. And he's challenging this obsession that we have so often to idolize our leaders, to reduce them as human beings to make them these little ambassadors of the faith that actually prevent us from having to have our own relationship with Jesus. And he kind of finishes out the argument by saying this. So then no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. And how often do we miss that in the modern church? We believe that the pastor's at the top of the pile. He's the pinnacle. And the staff belongs to the pastor. And the church belongs to the staff. And this is what happens when we idolize our leaders, when we put them up on this pedestal that they're supposed to be perfect and, and all of these things. But Paul, in that beautiful kingdom way, is subverting our understanding of authority and ownership. And he's saying, you think that you belong to me? No, I belong to you. And you belong to Jesus, and Jesus is of God. And in my best moments as the pastor of this community, and I do not do this consistently enough, I recognize I belong to you. You don't belong to me. You're not my church in that sense that I own you or dominate you or control you, but I actually belong to you. And then still more, the, the, the more beautiful revelation of my vocations go, oh my goodness, you belong to Jesus. You are his beloved. You are his chosen. And so my role is actually to lead you to him. And I think in that way, it's to recognize the illusion of the pastoral role is that I'm not actually the shepherd. I'm just another sheep that knows his voice. Jesus talks about in the Gospel of John, um, the sheep will know the shepherd's voice. So my role is to learn how to hear the voice of Jesus and to teach you to do the same so that you can begin to follow him and together, we're being led by the great shepherd, the great pastor, Jesus himself. And I think even in that, the illusion is that that's solely my responsibility. Because I think that's actually the invitation for all of us. We are all called to be sheep. We learn how to hear the voice of the shepherd, to respond, and then to teach those around us how to hear him as well. And the process is of us each discovering how we are uniquely crafted to do that. How are we each uniquely crafted because of our personality, because of our stories, because of our spiritual gifts, to tell each other the story in a way that it interprets us, to teach one another how to see here so that we go out and we see everything differently, and how to reject that idolization so that we're leading people, one another, to the feet of Jesus. Several months ago, um, someone I greatly admire and respect uh, really took me to task uh, on the roof of this very building after teaching many of us uh, what it means to hear the voice of God. And she gave me these two prophetic words. Um, and one of them was this, 
The world needs more pastors. There aren't enough actual pastors in our church today. And you are actually equipped with the gifts to be a pastor. But you need to stop hiding behind your gift as a teacher and start learning how to pastor. Talk about a punch to the gut. (laughs) And I'm still working through that. I, I, I don't know everything of what that entails, but I rightly recognize, yeah, I'm a pretty good teacher. But so often I replace the call to be a pastor with the role of being a teacher that this, this is sufficient, this is enough. If I can just do this and expound upon the scriptures, then I'm really doing my job. And so one of the challenges for me, but one of the challenges I think for all of us in 2018, is that I want to be your pastor. I wanna pastor you, I'm gonna shepherd you, I wanna spend time with you. I don't wanna to try to fix you, I don't wanna give you advice, but I wanna teach you how to see. I wanna teach you how to hear. I wanna tell you the story over and over and over again until the story tells you who you are and you find yourself at the feet of Jesus. So we're gonna open it up um, for some Q&A here. Hopefully you've been uh, sending in uh, some questions and we'll see how this goes. All right, what do we got? All right, number one. Why do you always pronounce Isaiah wrong? (laughs) Um, You pronounce it wrong, okay. Um, one of the things that I have had to do because I didn't go to seminary is catch up by doing lots and lots of learning. I love learning. I listen to a lot of podcasts and, and uh, you know, seminarians and theologians, and I read a lot of books. And one of my all-time heroes is N.T. Wright, who is probably the greatest living theologian of all time, and he says Isaiah. And if N.T. Wright says it, it's true. So everybody get on board. And by the way, it's Elijah and Elisha, not Elisha, all right? Mind's blown. All right, number two. What does godly submission to your pastor look like, not look like? Okay, Um, it does not look like you doing whatever I tell you to because I'm the pastor and you're not, okay? Um, This is one of the misunderstandings of of submission in general with scripture, and this is where we get it wrong. I think this is true in marriages and any place that it says submit, is that we think of authority as the military does where there's these ranks and people are ordered from top to bottom. So a lot of times how that's translated in the church and it's been a persistent heresy for 2,000 years is there's God and then there's Jesus and then there's the Holy Spirit and then there's mankind and then there's womankind and then there's children and then there's the animals, okay? That's a heresy. Um, and that's what we often think of when we think of submission. You, you are outranked military and militarily um, and you just have to obey that person. Um, In Ephesians 5, verse 20, Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ Jesus. And one of my favorite icons of all time is um, the three visitors to Abraham. You can find the the Greeks use this one in in prayer. And it's these three visitors uh, sitting around a table, and they're all kind of bowing and genuflecting to one another. They're all deferring to each other. And there's this circuit of like mutual submission, which is maybe the best picture of the Trinity that I've ever seen. And I think that that's the invitation for us in relationship. We're dependent, and it's true of any kind of title that we're given, that when we genuflect and defer to one another, not out of a place of rank or someone is more skilled or gifted or, or better than us, um, but because we're recognizing that each of the roles and titles that we have is specifically to help the other person better reveal Jesus, then I think submission to me as your pastor is to listen to what I say. You don't have to agree with me. You do have to listen. And you have the permission to, to disagree, um, but also to recognize in some way I have been ordained uh, to, to lead this church. It's not an accident that I'm here. And I know that's a very bold statement, um, but I think it's something that, that's pretty important to be said. Um, I, I also think that part of what that means is the best kind of submission out of reverence for Christ Jesus is for you to hold me accountable to the things that I say. Um, I never wanna be inaccessible uh, to you, and uh, you know that I hate confrontation, but so you know, kind of butter it up a lot. I found it's really helpful if you give me a compliment and then you just kind of eek it in there and then you give me another compliment. Just kidding. Um, but submission in that response is to say, because I recognize your ordination, because I recognize your position, I actually want to hold you accountable to be the best pastor that you can be. Um, okay. What is the most discouraging thing to see in our church community and what is the most encouraging previously or currently? Abandonment. Abandonment would be the number one most discouraging thing about doing church. 
um, to have such a radical awareness that the church is the place where, again, Hauerwas says God is creating a family out of strangers. Um, that we are bound together not because of our ethnicity, our socioeconomic background, our generational divisions, all of these like kind of empirical notions of how we create tribes, but that we're, we're crafted together because of what God has done for us. Uh, and then for people to see people for various reasons choose out of that, um, or to have one foot in and one foot out, um, is incredibly hard for me to take. And, and it's, it's been several times where I, when I, just when I feel like I'm getting used to this idea that church can have this kind of rotating cast of people choosing in and out, and I'm learning how to be okay with that, somebody else leaves, uh, and it just crushes me. Um, and I've talked to my parents about that a lot. They've been in ministry for over 30 years. And in a way, I don't know that it's something that you ever resolve. Or maybe you shouldn't. I don't know. Maybe we're supposed to keep ourselves tender. Maybe it should always hurt, you know, when people choose out of a relationship with us. I don't know. Um, one of the most encouraging things, I think, then um, is to see people choose in. Like, like I said, like faith is participation, especially when you don't have all of the facts. And for us to be a people of faith oriented around God's story where we're going to continue to choose in day in and day out, whether it makes sense, whether or not we feel like it, whether or not we're getting anything out of it or whatever it might be, but to see that higher calling um, and then to see the transformation in people's lives over time. Two of the things that I've been most excited about recently in that regard is how normal it's becoming in our church for people to hear the voice of God. That is freaking awesome. Like, it's just in casual. People are just, like, in conversation with people at a coffee shop, and they're like, yeah, I just felt like the Lord said this thing to me, and I just happened to do this, you know? That means, like, in some way that I'm maybe doing my job right, you know? Um, and the second thing is, that's kind of related to that is when people pray well. Um, man, I hear some of you guys pray, and it's beautiful. It's like you know what you're talking about. You're not just regurgitating, but you're actually encountering him. Um, did you or do you ever struggle with your faith? Yes, every single day. <laughs> every single day, maybe even every moment. Similarly, this morning, someone asked, do you ever doubt? And I said, yeah, I probably doubt the existence of God every day. And if it's not an intellectual doubt, it's, uh, it's a practical doubt. I live as if there is no God. I do think, you know, and I think that's part of the journey of faith is saying, here's the things that I say that I believe, and then here's the way that I live my life, and I'm just actually building bridges between those things in a way that they're actually being woven back together. And so, yeah, I frequently doubt the existence of God. I think a lot of times that I'm probably crazy, uh, that this story seems ridiculous and, and doesn't make a lot of sense and doesn't seem to be particularly applicable. Um, but the things that continually bring me back are seeing the evidence of God at work in our lives today. When I hear those stories of someone uh, learning how to pray or having this encounter, hearing his voice, being obedient, when I hear stories of miracles and, and healings of people uh, coming out of the most dire of situations and finding hope uh, in the story of Jesus to go, oh, this is actually real. This thing is actually true. And it's not true just because we decided that it was a good story. It's true because it's changing us um, and it's actually leading us deeper into faith. What are the gaps in leadership as you, Cole, Daniel, and the elders work together? And how are you addressing those gaps? Gaps, that's an interesting one. Um, here's the thing I recognize about vision. If you're already seeing your vision it completely played out in real time, it's not vision, right? Like vision to some way is like, this is the thing that we're attaining to. And so uh, I think a lot of times the, the problem is that we expect uh, church structure, church vision, whatever, our relationships to be these finished products, like we've already worked out all the kinks. But I think the process of faith is to say, and I've talked about this several times with this idea of covenant, we're committing to one another to walking the journey in a way that we're, con we're continuing to close those gaps. Um, and so, you know, we have to continually choose to recognize in the kingdom that our greatest strength of unity is actually in our diversity and not our uniformity, right? We've talked about this a lot. If we all thought the same way, spoke the same way, had the same experiences of God, we should probably just quit now. But a lot of times that's what we think we're pursuing when we pursue unity. If we can get everybody on the same page and all do it the same way, then we're strong, then we're good, then we're faithful or whatever it is. Um, but to choose to recognize, actually, it's the diversity of our experiences of God um, in our practices and our beliefs of him that our willingness to be covenantally bound to one another, to work down the road with each other, we see uh, the, the real, you know, number one, the, the, the reality of what God's like revealed in that. But number two, we're formed by that. 
Um, and so, you know, I don't, I don't think we've ever kept it a secret that like Coline, there's a lot of things that we disagree on. Um, but it's the commitment to one another to continue to, to, to offer up our stories and our experiences that actually makes the thing better. Um, and that's one of the amazing things about having uh, Daniel on, on staff with me over these past five months has been um, just learning, being able to learn from him. You know, I think maybe another thing I would even add about the role of pastor um, in Taoism, which is this uh, Japanese religion, the, the word that they use for their teacher is fellow learner. And I really like that posture because I think we could probably reclaim that as well. That, you know, I am a fellow learner, right? I'm the widow who's found the coin and in my excitement, I wanna get my friends together and have a party. Um, and I think when we can do that in our staff and with our elders, we're, we're continually like through conversation and the commitment of presence to one another, um, we're not, a, it doesn't mean we're agreeing on everything, but um, in, the conversations were being bound closer together and we're pursuing God um, you know, with a more kind of singular vision for our church community. Um, how do you know if a path you have the opportunity to go down is from God? <laughs> That's a great question. We should probably do a whole series on that. Do you look more like him when you do it? One of the questions... You're welcome. Well, see you later, everybody. <laughs> um, I heard that someone asked this question last week, and it's really messed me up. Uh, in your career, whatever, are you actively working to create a world that you don't want to live in? You know, um, when you're discovering your calling, does it reflect God's character and his will, okay, and who, what you already know about who God is, and that means there's a lot of great questions there about, okay, what is God's like? What is God's plan for the world? And then number two, are you being authentic to your story, um, how God has crafted you and like, how you've moved through history with him, your personality, how you see the world, and then your gift set, how God has actually equipped you to do the thing. And when you begin to look at the intersection of all of those things, I think that helps you to go further down the road of, of knowing that God's given you those opportunities. Um, St. Augustine of Hippo said, love God and do as you please. The soul trained in love of God will do nothing to offend him. Uh, and there's a lot of responsibility there in free will, but that mandate is when we love God, that's what forms us and helps us to make those decisions. Um, I will, this will be the last question, and then we're going to step into worship. How might we as church members make your role as a lead pastor easier and more joyful? Um, I've talked before about how I'm recognizing how I don't really value joy, and I probably need to value that more. Um, so if you can help me with that, that would be really great. Yeah. All right, all right. Some of you are like really joyful in it. I love that. Um, double my salary. Yes, because it's you tried and true that money makes us happier. Um, I don't want my job to be easy. That's not interesting to me, you know? A lot of times that's ultimately what we make decisions out of, right? Like we make them out of comfort and what's the easiest path. I want my job to be more meaningful. Uh, but for my job to be more meaningful, I need to be able to do my job. So I think first of all, I want you guys to trust that I like what I do. I really do. There's nothing that brings me more joy than sitting with you, than hearing your stories, uh, than praying with you, than celebrating with you, with mourning with you, um, helping you process, and ultimately helping you uh, discover God in some ways that, that maybe you haven't before. Um, and that's, that's, what I, that's what I want. Like that, it just it makes me happy. I, I do what I do because of who I am. You know, those aren't different things to me. Um, and so it brings me great joy to be able to be your pastor. So just let me pastor you. You know, don't feel guilty for reaching out because you want to get together or you, want to, you just want me to pray for you or you want to tell me a story. Like, that stuff is, is a joy for me. Um, and, yeah, I mean, and just for us to continue to do it together. Like, let's just choose in to each other every day um, and, and see where the Lord takes us. It's always a surprise, but it's more beautiful than anything that we would have uh, ascribed on our own. Um, so let's stand together. Um, and we're going we're gonna to worship. And this is one of the ways that we, when we sing over one another, we are, we are telling each other the story. And as we're telling each other the story, we're being formed by it. Um, and, and again, that is one of the great joys of my life. Um, so let me pray and let's worship. Um, Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the gift uh, of the church. 
that this is a group of people who are orienting themselves around your story so that we might meet you, we might encounter you, and we might be transformed by you. So we go back out into the world and we reveal you wherever we go. Um, That's a high expectation, Lord, but we know that you're faithful and that you're gonna come through for us. So Heavenly Father, as we worship here tonight, we give you permission to move in us and through us, speak to us, teach us how to hear your voice, um, that we might become uh, your people, your children, your family. Uh, And may all of this be to the glory of your Son, our Savior, our Pastor, our Shepherd, uh, Jesus Christ. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.